Okay? So there was a big juicy question from yesterday that will not, will not arouse a short answer. I'm not sure it's going to take 40 minutes, but um, it won't be a five-minute response. You'll see why. How would you like to see the development of Buddhism and contemplative science in the West within the next 10 to 15 years? <laughs> what would you like to see happen? Uh, may I say the, the questioner? Yeah, Nathan, thank you. Big juicy one. Big juicy one. Well, of course, I could go on for months on that one. Uh, it is really my answer itself, my response to this very meaningful question, is itself an expression, I hope, I think, of loving kindness. Because I think if such a contemplative science really developed, flourished, the whole point of that is that people get benefit. You know, there's alleviation of suffering and there's greater happiness. Otherwise, why bother, you know, if it's just intellectual curiosity, just one more arcane branch of science, um, you know, then who cares? But no, I think the development of such a contemplative science would be potentially tremendously beneficial. First of all, to define it very briefly, because it said Buddhism and contemplative science. Uh, Buddhism, nobody, I don't need to define that, that was, that's already there. But the word contemplative science, I actually coined that term as far as I, I know. Uh, I don't, haven't seen anybody use it before. I first used it in my book, Choosing Reality, which is 25 years ago. No big deal, but... So, I will tell you how I'm defining the term. And a contemplative science is not simply rejuvenated Buddhism. It is truly a science, and it's truly contemplative. And what it entails that is fresh, in fact, unprecedented, because it's not already something there in Buddhism just waiting to be peeled off and say, oh yeah, we already had it. Is there science already in Buddhism? Is there a type of contemplative science? No, no question in my mind. Vipassana is contemplative science. The four applications of mindfulness are contemplative science, and so forth. But when I'm referring to now developing a contemplative science, I'm suggesting something that is unprecedented, that would be, to my mind, a tremendous enrichment of the science of the mind, as well as a tremendous enrichment of Buddhism in the 21st century. So really, how do you say, mutual benefit and unprecedented. And what I'm suggesting here is when I conceive of a contemplative science, I'm thinking of both of a cognitive aspect as well as a therapeutic or practical aspect. So wisdom and, sk and skillful means, wisdom and method, right? So academic psychology, cognitive psychology, affective psychology, developmental psychology and so forth tend to be about knowing the nature of the mind, knowing the nature of emotions and so forth. And then we have the clinical psychology, and that's really all about healing the mind. One of the most bizarre aspects of modern science of the mind is these are kept quite separate to a large extent. I mean, obviously not absolutely independent, but the training on a graduate level, you can get a whole PhD in cognitive psychology and really hardly touch, touch base in clinical psychology. And Malcolm, it's an, it's an also not true that you can get a degree in clinical psychology but not really do much in the field of cognitive psychology, cognitive neuroscience, and so forth. So, so he nodded yes, and he has a lot of experience. That's my sense of it. That doesn't make any sense. You want to heal something, but you have these people over here learning about that which you're trying to heal. Right? But you have a separate discipline. And the people are learning about the mind as if they don't have one are studying it without relevance to how to heal it. That just doesn't make any sense at all. It's kind of like this, this weird, really insane type of objectivity as if we're not participants in reality, that we're observers. Let's study the mind. I've heard that some people have one. 
let's study mental disease. Of course, I don't have any, but for those who have mental diseases, let's study those people. It's an observer, like, I don't have a mind, therefore, why would I want to practice introspection? And I'm not mentally diseased, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> and therefore, I'll study mental disease as an object, as something out there. We're not, we're not observers, we are participants, we're observer participants, but we're full-fledged members. Like it or not, here we are. I mean, pardon the truism, but we're full-fledged members in reality. And we do have minds, all of us, even psychologists and even neuroscientists have minds. And we're all subject to mental afflictions. So part of a, co a contemplative science would be just restoring sanity to the study of the mind. That the study of the mind, to understand the nature of the mind, how it functions, how mental events arise, and so forth, how they influence the body, how they influence behavior, how they influence other people. That they, this epistemic approach to studying the mind is geared towards healing the mind of its afflictions and geared toward achieving genuine happiness. It's not separate. It's not another PhD track, right? And likewise, for those who are really wanting to be healers, a major facet of their training will be to understand how the mind ticks. What's the nature of consciousness? How does the mind emerge? What is the nature of the mind? And so that these two would be profoundly entangled. Contemplative science would, would unite that which should never have been disunited in the first place. So that would be one element. But where, where and, the, this is, and this is true of Buddhism. Buddhism at its best. Sometimes Buddhism does get very scholastic and very, how do you say, intellectual. And so that when they study Buddhist psychology, Lodic, I was quite astonished when I studied Lodic. We had a wonderful teacher, and he wrote a textbook, Gen Losangatsu. His Gen Losangatsu, our teacher, he wrote his own Buddhist psychology textbook. It was really marvelous. As I recall, I think we, no, we memorized another text, we memorized the whole text. And I saw all the practical applications of understanding the nature of the mind and these multiple mental factors and seeing these are wholesome and these are unwholesome and these are the modes of cognition from delusion to doubt to belief to inference to direct perception and so forth. This whole epistemic hierarchy of ways of knowing from delusion to direct perception and then multiple modes of direct perception. It's really a fantastic system. Buddhist psychology, it's your elementary intro level of Buddhist psychology. Monks get it and now nuns happily too, right there in the very early phase of the training. But what we weren't taught at that time, which kind of struck me as odd, with all wonderful respect for my teacher, we were never taught, how do you apply this in practice? Is this relevant for shamatha? Is this relevant, how do you practice this? Is this relevant for the four applications of mindfulness? It's absolutely relevant, but it was taught in a more scholastic fashion. Yeah, and debating and whipping and whopping and stamping and yahooing and so forth. But there was no direct connection to meditation. So even in Buddhism, there's sometimes, you know, you have the meditation manuals over here and then you have the academic manuals over there. But again, rather than running on and on, try to get to really what is the essence of the contemplative science that would be unprecedented. And that is, I've been critical of the mind sciences because some things strike me as being not sensible, like this disenfranchisement between the cognitive and the therapeutic ways of engaging with studying and understanding the mind. There are, of course, great strengths to the Western scientific study of the mind. 
some of which you do not find in Buddhism. So on the one hand, dating back to just about exactly one century ago, 1910, that was, I mean, give or take some years, that really heralded the beginning of the very systematic, quantitative, refined and sophisticated study of the mind by way of behavior. At its best, that's what it was doing. It was studying the mind by way of its behavioral expressions in animals, in human beings, and frankly, behavior also includes talking about one's own mental experience. That too is a type of behavior. And as this um, cognitive psychologist I cited earlier, um, who attended the Mind of Life meeting last April, a year ago last April, she commented, which I thought was had a very strong behaviorist flavor to her comment. She said, as a cognitive psychologist, she said, when we interview subjects about their experience, we do not take their, their statements about their own experience to be correct. We don't take them to be veridical accounts. This is actually what happened in the person's mind. We don't do that. We, what is true is the person said it. And that's true. Subject A said this. That is a fact. It was an objective fact. I can show you. Play the recording again. Did say it. It's true. But is it true of that person's subjective experience? Oh, well, we don't ask that question. So that's a very behaviorist approach. To my mind, kind of a sad approach. You're so bloody deluded that we'll not take seriously anything you're saying. Have a nice day. Hmm. Can you imagine a clinical psychologist doing that with a patient coming in? Saying, I'm suffering from really severe anxiety. When I wake up in the morning, I feel very disoriented. I find anxiety arising frequently. I have a hard time sleeping. And the clinical psychologist say, well, of course, I don't believe anything you're saying, but I do believe you said it. <laughs> That's just weird. So, nevertheless, studying the mind by way of behavior does make a lot of sense. And it's the, the sophistication, the quantitative measurement, the analysis, all of this, much has been learned. Much has been learned, no question about it. One, one of my favorites is Paul Ekman's work on this facial action coding system. We're able to observe behavior, but now it's the expressions lighting up in the face. Something like, I think it was 35 muscle groups, and being able to discern subtle and micro expressions, and being able to draw strong inferences about the emotions a person is actually experiencing subjectively while displaying objectively these small movements of the facial muscles. That's really cool. And that is understanding the mind by way of behavior. That a person who has that ability to recognize these facial expressions may, on occasion, know more about the other person's emotions than that person does at that time. That's cool. And that's behavior. That is behavior. So I'm critical, but I hope I'm at least making an attempt to be fair in my critical comments about modern mind sciences. Buddhism doesn't have that. Buddhism does study the mind by way of behavior, but that type of precision, nowhere to be found. That type of quantitative analysis, nowhere to be found. So, the modern science there has something to enrich, to enrich Buddhist tradition. And then, of course, the great big one here is, I mean, there's more to it than just these two, but the other one is the scientific study of the brain. And that's just fantastic. And Buddhism has nothing remotely like it. I don't, I've never even heard of any detailed theory of the brain as such in Buddhist treatises. They have a word for it, lepa. You know, lepa is that tapioca pudding-like substance between your ears. And if you get a big head injury, you might not be as smart afterwards. 
you know, so kind of commonplace head injury. If you get stomach injury, you can be just as smart. Big head injury, maybe not so smart. You know, so they recognize there's some relationship there. But of course, the technology was not. And I would say, in partial defense of Buddhism, it's quite clear, just empirically, that I'm going to make this as a statement, that you don't really need to know much, if anything, about the brain in order to identify and alleviate mental afflictions and develop compassion and wisdom and insight and realize primordial consciousness. You don't really need to know what's taking place in the brain while you do that, as long as you're doing it. So the brain, come along for the ride, but I'm busy. You know? If you have brain damage, then the, the meditator might want to know. You know? It's like sometimes meditators, one in particular that I know of, had a stroke. Had a stroke. I'm an accomplished meditator from Thailand, northern Thailand. Had a stroke. That definitely impaired his mental abilities. Right? Well, my mother had a stroke. But she had superb, immediate medical attention. My dad saw it immediately, if I can share a bit of private. It's not that private. Mom, I'm okay. But my dad was right there. And he saw immediately when the stroke set in, immediately called 9-1, rushed off to the hospital. They gave her a fantastic, what was it called, clot-busting drug. And she, there it was. She was really handicapped for a very short time. The drug was administered in time. She's now clear mind, as, as clear as before the stroke. That's wonderful. I mean, I'm happy as her son. I'm happy for everybody who has you know, access to that technology. And that's because they know a lot about the brain. It not, was not demonic possession. It was not just bad karma. It was not, you know, it was a blood, cl it was a blood clot, right? And they knew what part of the brain was responsible. They knew the drug that could break up that clot if administered very quickly. If you wait two hours, it's too late, right? So meditators, too, can be really happy that there's a whole branch of science, cognitive neuroscience, and other aspects of neuroscience, and Buddhism doesn't have it. So what is unprecedented, to finally let the shoe drop, is to take these formidable strengths of the scientific study of the mind, and the strengths are found especially in these ways of understanding the mind by way of behavior, including verbal report, but studying somebody else's mind by way of their verbal report and behavior, and study, studying somebody else's mind by way of the neural correlates. And those two, Buddhism does not, either doesn't have at all or doesn't have with nearly the sophistication of the modern sciences with all the technology, the mathematics, and so forth. And so that pretty well defines the scientific study of the mind. It's objective. You're always studying somebody else's mind. And I just, I just sent an email to one of my senior-most psychologist friends and made the comment, and that is, I said, I, I do not know of a single major university in the whole world major university like Harvard, Oxford, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, and so forth, where either undergraduate or graduate students are given any rigorous training, sustained rigorous training, in developing their attention skills and developing their ability to observe their own minds. I don't know one. And my psychologist friend did not counter, oh, but you didn't hear about... And the hand never came up. So, on that point... I'd like to go back to William James and a statement he made a little bit more than a century ago. He died 100 years ago in August. But obviously, well, I think it was about 10 or 15 years before he passed away, he made a statement located in that phase of history, the end of the 19th century. He said, psychology today is where astronomy was before Galileo. Astronomy today is where psychology was before Galileo. I'd like to pause a little bit there because I think it's a very, very insightful and fair 
statement of psychology in, let's say, 1890. But to go back, because I've had a lot of interest in the, in the origins of modern astronomy, before Galileo, there were many, many generations of really very talented mathematicians working out of the medieval and really rooted in the astronomy of Ptolemy, so going back many centuries. I don't remember exactly what century, maybe the second century, something like that. Do you remember Emiliana, Ptolemy? I think it's a long time ago, roughly 2,000 years ago. Ptolemy, so one of the great founders of the study of the stars and planets. And so there was that system, and there was astrology, of course, but there was very detailed mathematics, and by the time we get to Galileo's time, at the beginning, well, 400 years ago, beginning of the 17th century, um, the mathematics was very good, and they could, they could predict, the mathematics was good enough, they could predict the occurrence of lunar eclipses, solar eclipses. They knew very well how the how the, the planets would move across the sky, and so forth. So the mathematics was very good. The astrology was very well developed. Whether you think it has truth to it or not, it was certainly a very well-developed field. A lot of people believed in it. And there was certainly beginnings before Galileo of a true science of astronomy and, an, and a science of very careful observation and focusing primarily on the, the Danish astronomer, Tycho Brahe. And he had an, astronomy, an astronomical laboratory, an observatory, but it had no telescopes, but it had really sophisticated measurement devices to plot with tremendous precision. This is late 16th century. The, the relative positions of the stars and planets in the night sky, and to be able to track the movements of the planets and so forth. It was just unprecedented precision. The, 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 the mechanics of this was really quite superb. And he, was, he must have been a very patient man because he acquired reams of data of the exact movements across the night sky of the movements of the different planets. And that was his observation. It's still naked eye observation. But the instruments could detect with tremendous precision exactly where in the night sky these were as the whole stars seemed to move across the night sky. Well, it was based on the basis of his very careful observations that his protege, Johannes Kepler, took his data, and then he, he was a brilliant mathematician, like Copernicus before him. Copernicus was not a great observer. He was a churchman. He didn't do any interesting observations at all. I imagine he probably got on top of the church once in a while and said, boy, it's pretty, you know. But no careful observations, no discoveries, empirical discoveries on Copernicus's part at all, even though they call it the Copernican Revolution. Uh, he, of course, came up with the mathematical theory that placed the sun in the center and the planets around it, rather than the geocentric earth in the center, sun and all the planets going around the earth, as well as all the stars going around the earth, that was absolutely the received wisdom, the almost unquestioned assumption of, oh, for centuries and centuries, right? So Copernicus, inspired by a theory from ancient Greece, came up with this heliocentric system, but that was simply retrieving an old idea, but he formulated it mathematically in an unprecedented fashion and showed mathematically how elegant this was to place the, earth, the sun at the center and all the planets going around. When the church, and and he, was, he was so afraid of his own church uh, that he didn't allow his work to be published until after he was dead. Because the church, that was during the real heyday of the Inquisition, and the church had a rather nasty habit of burning people. Uh, that came up with ideas that they disagreed with. Like Bruno, came, Bruno and earlier came up with the idea that space was infinite. You get torched for that. Yeah, they got burned at the stake. Not nice. 
So Copernicus wanted to die of old age and not be toasted. So he didn't want to run the risk. And so it's just the opposite, pardon the little joke, but it's just the opposite of nowadays in academia, they say, publish or perish, publish or perish. There it was, don't publish or else perish. <laughs> you know, wait until you've perished before you publish and then you're safe. Moreover, you can't be excommunicated. You can't excommunicate somebody who's already dead, I don't think. I think it's too late, isn't it? I hope so. In any case, Copernicus came up with this marvelous theory that he allowed to be published posthumously. And the church looked at it, the pope and other you know, hierarchs in, in the church, and they looked at it, and there was, a, it, there was an epilogue to, that, that, that came in, in the edition saying, and he was protecting himself even after in the grave, saying, I don't take this literally, but this is one way of saving the appearances. This is one way of accounting for the movements, but I don't really mean it. So don't excommunicate me after my dead, please. <laughs> and so the church looked at this, and this was really the, the main voice of the church said, that's a very interesting theory. Of course, there's the one we like, and that's the, the one that's been around for centuries. And the Bible does say the sun rises in the east, which suggests, thank you, sun, for going around the earth and all the stars for going around the earth. So we're going to bank on this one, but it's a nice theory, mathematically elegant, and we wouldn't have burned you had you, you know, published before you perished. And so that's the way it was. And so at that point, by the time we get Copernicus' time, and for some decades after that, whether the earth really goes around the sun or vice versa was a matter of metaphysics. There's no way to put it to the test because you had two mathematical theories, both of which really worked. They had good explanatory power, they could predict eclipses, and so forth and so on. So it was metaphysical. It's just a matter of preference. No way to put it to the test of experience. That defines metaphysical. You can't test it with experience. Well, there were a number of assumptions during that time. Quite well, an awful lot of assumptions from medieval scholasticism. And what they had was a story they loved. The medieval scholastics, and I think that's the way to say it. They had a story they loved that it made sense, they felt at home, now we've got it, it's complete, it's perfect, it's whole, and it's true. And it's this grand fusion of biblical theology with Aristotelian physics and metaphysics. And, and the brilliant, this genius Thomas Aquinas synthesized this into one system that includes the natural world and the supernatural world and everything fit, which is quite an extraordinary accomplishment since Aristotle wasn't a Christian. Not bad, you know? But there it was, and it was so powerful, it was so compelling and satisfying, and seemed to be complete, that you can imagine the existential investment you would have, and something made you feel, I've got it, I know where I am, I know who I am, God is in his, in his heaven, the stars are going around, and I am here, and I know what's going on. You know? There's something really satisfying in that. I've got it figured out, and don't bother me. You know? And one of the things they absolutely had figured out is that all of the celestial bodies were perfect spheres, perfect, flawless, blemishless spheres, and they all went around in perfect circles, very Pythagorean. They also had figured out that if you have a big heavy object and a much smaller object and you drop them both, the heavier object will come down faster. They had that one figured out. It's kind of obvious, right? And they also had figured out that if you roll balls down a ramp, they would go at constant velocity. They had that all figured out. The scientists here are just laughing and grinning because what they had figured out was completely false. Everything I just said was completely false. But you wouldn't know it 
Because you look up at the stars, I mean, the moon has a bit of shading, but besides that, you know, it's perfect. Everything looks... And Kepler got the data from Tycho Brahe, and he started crunching the numbers. He's really brilliant as a mathematician, and he was a theologian, and he was an astrologer. But he was really a superb mathematician. And he started crunching the numbers, analyzing the data from Tycho Brahe's extremely careful measurements of the relative motion of the planets with the backdrop of the stars. And he found something that just appalled him. He really didn't like it. Because he loved the Pythagorean vision of the harmony of the spheres. It's an elegant, beautiful vision, kind of a, a utterly idealistically, mathematically based vision. And everything has to go around in perfect circles. And he crunched the numbers. And it just must have ruined his day, day after day after day, to see that in fact, the notion that all the planets moved in perfect circles just did not correspond to the data. What it turned out they moved in was ellipses. An ellipse isn't nearly as nice as a circle. It's rather than, this brings a happy smile. This brings... <laughs> That's not so nice. That's not so... He didn't like that at all. But because of his crunching the numbers, he came up with the three laws of planetary motion that completely defied what had been believed for centuries and centuries and centuries. He was compelled to by the empirical evidence. He didn't like it because he loved the older theory, but he was compelled by that. And he also felt drawn to taking Copernicus seriously, that in fact the, the, the sun really is at the center of this, what we call the solar system. <coughs> so all of that is before Galileo. So in other words, no mean feat. This is not just putzing around with superstition and so forth. This is pretty elegant. And I would say no, no mean feat in, in 1890, and I would say what William James, and this is what I'm getting to, Nathan, is what William James said in 1890, I think is true in 2010. Psychology today is where astronomy was before Galileo. And I've, got, I've gone into this whole story about Tycho Brahe and Kepler and all of that to show that doesn't mean it's stupid, that it's bad. I mean, it really has some elegance and some insight and it's really moving and it does have an empirical basis. But the one thing that neither Tycho Brahe or Copernicus or Kepler or any of their precedents had ever done, any of the preceding generations of astrologers and astronomers and so forth, what they'd never done any of them was to use a telescope and actually observe the planet, stars, sun and moon with greater precision and, of course, magnification. Galileo was the first one. He took a piddling little, I'm sorry for the, for the, the Dutch person in the room, or Dutch people in the room, but what the Dutch had come up with in terms of a telescope was pretty wimpy. You know, they, they had invented the telescope, but it was three power. It's not much. That's opera glasses, a really cheap pair of opera glasses. And what Galileo did, he, did he, he got the idea from the Dutch, but then he refined it from three power to eight power to 20 power to 30 power. So in one man, he just took it by an order of magnitude, right? And developed something that can actually be used as a scientific instrument. And he used these in increasingly higher magnification telescopes to do what no one had ever done before in recorded history. And that is to very carefully, with great precision, with great stability and vividness. <laughs> vividness as in high resolution, well-polished, well-ground lenses, sharply focused, 
observed what no one had observed before. That unlike the, the medieval view that all, all celestial bodies came in perfect circles around the earth, just ain't so. Kepler had already found they move in ellipses, but what Galileo discovered was the moons of Jupiter don't go around the earth, they go around Jupiter. They had no business doing that. Centuries and centuries of people said that doesn't happen. He just looked and he said, yes, it does. I watched. I watched really carefully. And those little points of light, they're going around Jupiter. And they're not going around the earth. And of course, he believed also in the Copernican theory, the heliocentric, which he championed as being true and not just an elegant way to save appearances, not as simply a metaphysical preference. He discovered the moons of Jupiter. He discovered that the sun is not this blemishless, perfect sphere. It's got spots. The sun has pimples or warts or flare-ups. It's more like a pimple because it flares up, you know? It gets sunspots, right? He's, he was the first one to see that. It's not, that shouldn't be so. No, it's a celestial body. It should be perfect. It's out in the celestial spheres. Nope, not true. Sun has spots. And let alone the pockmark, smallpox-laden moon with all those craters. Yikes. That's not perfect. I mean, it's, it's been bombarded with something. It's got jagged all over the place. Not what they said. And then the real showstopper for Galileo, he published his great book, The Starry Messenger, uh, 401 years ago. 1609, and that was his report of what he had seen that no one had ever saw, seen before. I might have just been so cool to see what no one had ever seen before, right? In recorded history, anyway. But he saw that Venus has phases, like the moon has phases. That was the first empirical evidence that suggested Copernicus was actually right. Because you really have to do major contortions to say, yes, Venus has phases, and yes, it does go around the earth as does the sun. That's really hard to do. Whereas if you consider that Venus goes around the sun, that makes perfect sense. That was the first empirical evidence. Well, he got all of that, and this is where I'm really going with this. And why J William James, I would say, is right. Psychology, even now, 110 or 20 years after he said it, I would say is like astronomy before Galileo. He made those great discoveries, and then... Hallelujah. Praise the scientific community and the technological community, the engineering community, the optical community, that we've gone from his 30 power to the, Wilson, the, Wilson, the Mount Wilson telescope, 100 inch, Mount Palomar, 200 inch, to the Hubble, which is now getting phased out, and they're mo moving on to multiple generations of telescopes beyond the Hubble. It's so fantastic. And all of this is the spearhead. It's the sharp point of scientific inquiry of making more and more meticulous, probing, insightful, careful, meticulous and rigorous observations. And that's the phalange. Is that the word I want? The, the, the point of a military, the isn't the phalange of, in any case, something that's pointed, breaking through. I think that's the word, I'm not quite sure. It doesn't matter. But you get the point. It's the sharp edge of the blade. The careful, meticulous, precise and penetrating observation of the phenomena you're trying to understand. And that's how science has progressed. For all of the physical sciences, that's how it's progressed. For all of the biological sciences, evolution, for example, Darwin spent about 25 years of very careful, meticulous, sustained, rigorous observation, both in England as well as in his great circumambulation around the earth in the, in the Beagle. Careful observation, 
Alfred Russell Wallace did the same thing in, the in, in Brazil and then in the Malaysian Peninsula. Years and years of careful, careful, meticulous observation of living organisms, animals and plants for that matter. And both of them simultaneously came up with the theory of evolution. They didn't dream it up because they're so smart. They dreamed it up based upon very careful observation of the phenomena they were seeking to understand. And likewise for genetics and likewise for cell biology and likewise for neurophysiology. If you really want to understand the brain, how do you do it? You observe it as carefully as you can, in every way you can, right? Including surgery, fMRI, EEG, PET scans, every way you can. If you want us to understand the brain, observe it carefully. And then we come to the scientific study of the mind. And not even the beginnings of a three-power telescope for observing the mind directly really strikes me as bizarre. No training in introspection. No training in attention skills. Develop the stability and vividness. No training in metacognitive skills. Let alone the detailed, careful, meticulous investigation of the body, its relationship with the mind, feelings, mental states, phenomena that we find in the four applications of mindfulness. So a contemplative science would bring the enormous strength of Buddhism and other contemplative traditions. But Buddhism really comes loaded here with this tremendous heritage of depth, breadth, subtlety, precision, theoretical sophistication based upon observation of the mind from a first-person perspective, which is the only way anybody observes the mind, unless you're clairvoyant. And to unite this, so that's been around for a long time, and all I would like to see is it's revitalized, rejuvenated, brought fully into the 21st century. Just good bona fide Buddhism but, and so that's not unprecedented. That's trying to blow off all the dust and let its glory shine out. But it's unprecedented, never before in history. And I'm not going to do it. I'm just one tiny player. I'm a little peanut. But would be the integration of the behavioral methods, the neuroscientific methods, with the rigorous first person. And that would be contemplative science. And it would be both epistemic, to really use this, this combined integrative approach, understand the nature of consciousness, the nature of the mind, the origins of consciousness, if there are multiple dimensions of consciousness, explore those. How does the mind become afflicted? How can it be healed? To what extent can it be healed? Does it terminate or does it not at death? We've all left these in the realm of metaphysics, so much of it. Oh, who can know? Who can know? That's a theological question. Oh, who can know? It's a metaphysical question. Well, so was the question of whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth before Galileo. It was metaphysical until the technology was there, and then it stopped being metaphysical. 19th century, the existence of atoms was metaphysical. Until the 1920s, the existence of other galaxies was metaphysical. Until about 20 years ago, the existence of planets going around other stars was metaphysical. In other words, have any opinion you like, because who can test it? And now each of those points is no longer metaphysical, now it's science. Over, what is it, 400 exoplanets by now, and they're getting more each month. And from in the 1920, 1924, 25, 26, that's when Hubble, using the telescope in Mount Wilson, in my hometown, Pasadena, discovered the first galaxy outside the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy. There were then two galaxies. This is only, what, 90 years ago, 85 years ago. There were two galaxies known in the whole universe, ours and the Andromeda Galaxy. He did more research with this marvelous piece of technology and discovered four, five, or six galaxies. Whoa, there's a lot of galaxies. Now how many? 85 years, 85 years later. 
100 billion. That was metaphysical a century ago. And now it's just excellent science. And why? Because the technology got good enough to push back the boundaries of metaphysics and draw in empiricism or expand the boundaries of empiricism and push back the dark cloud of metaphysics. For the scientific study of the mind, it is inundated with metaphysics. The metaphysics of materialism that's been blocking, I think, the true scientific study of the mind at every point. And I think that's just got to go. It's just got to go. At least question it. And Buddhism does that in spades. So what would I love to see happening in the next 10, 15 years? I'd love to see this place flourish, just locally. Think locally. No, think globally, act locally. Here we are. We're acting locally. I'd love to see this flourish and people get a lot of benefit. Retreat after retreat after retreat. But right over yonder, just there, I would love to see the first contemplative observatory built. There are retreat centers all over the place, very, very good ones. Thailand, Sri Lanka, Tibet, Bhutan, and so forth. Hopefully they'll have one soon in Mongolia. Good retreat center. A contemplative observatory, profoundly inspired by Buddhism, would be open to people who simply have open minds, who are not necessarily, have not necessarily already taken refuge, already believe in reincarnation and karma and all, the whole of Lamrim and the six realms of existence and all the, the four laws of karma. Actually, that is my worldview. I'm a Buddhist, and I have investigated these, and I am a Buddhist. And I, I embrace this out of my deep faith and respect for the Buddha himself and the great contemplatives afterwards. So I'm, my own approach is absolutely not secular, very traditional. But Buddhist contemplative inquiry should not be confined to people who've already become Buddhist. If it's true, it should be open for open-minded people to investigate. And that was actually the Buddhist approach itself. When he went to Sadhanat and he encountered these five close companions of his, you know what he didn't say? First of all, do 100,000 prostrations and do 100,000 Vajrasattva and, 100, and then I'll start teaching you. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I'm a Buddha, I'm omniscient, so first take refuge in me and then I'll spill the beans. Then I'll tell you what's going on. He didn't say. He didn't say, I have seen with my own direct knowledge that there is reincarnation that's karma and there's, he didn't say. He didn't draw the attention to himself and command allegiance. Believe what I'm saying because, hey, I am a Buddha. Rather, he directed his words to their experience to be empirical. This is the reality of suffering. This is the reality of suffering. Recognize it rather than anesthetize it. This is the reality of the source of suffering. Dispel it rather than kill the messenger. Here's the reality of the cessation of suffering. Realize it. Here's the reality of the path to cessation. Follow it. He drew them back to their own experience and he encouraged them to be critical, to be skeptical, to investigate pragmatically and empirically whether or not his words were true. That's the Buddha's own approach. And it gets easily obscured by centuries and centuries of tradition where people are raised as Buddhist, which I think is a wonderful thing, which then are raised with, Buddha, with Buddhist beliefs and raised with faith and so forth, raised with the whole inertia of the society. So you can teach them from the beginning, this is a precious human rebirth with 18 qualities. But to teach that to a person who just walks through the door, 
oh, by the way, welcome. My name's Alan. I'm a, I'm a Dharma teacher. You have 18 qualities to your precious human rebirth. Think about that. What? <laughs> you know? So the contemplative science invites people who are open-minded, who are willing to be skeptical of their own assumptions. What would I love to see happen? That we get this contemplative observatory going up within a year or so, and that we have people achieving shamatha. They're developing, they're moving from their three-power telescope to their 30-power telescope. They're accessing and realizing through their own experience of substrate consciousness. Then they start to run experiments out of the, the Hubble telescope, which is beyond the atmospheric distortion of their own psyche and start exploring things like, is it true or is it not that people have past lives? Can we explore this rigorously, objectively, so that it, with, that it stands up to even the most careful scrutiny? Is it true or not? This is a really big question. And if we can move this out of the realm of metaphysics into the realm of empirical knowledge that can be demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt, oh, that'd be amazing. But that's just identifying the problem <laughs> that... You can't die in the sense of just, you know, saying bye-bye to reality. So that just identifies the problem. Then what is the root of suffering? And so then proceed along in the epistemic and the pragmatic. I see the time. But using this platform, but with full engagement. So Klaus, Heaven, and I, we already have envisioned that one of the rooms here will be specifically designated and, uh, uh, how do you say, equipped as a scientific lab. So everything but fMRI. MRI we have in the Bangkok Hospital downtown. It's a new one, 3.5 Tesla. Not bad, I think. And they're willing to let us use it. Right? But everything else is not that expensive. Cliff Saren, for the Shamata Project, set up two back-to-back -back labs, fully equipped for EEG and everything else needed, including blood lab and a whole bunch of other things, $70,000 a piece for the whole lab, everything. And so we could have a lab like that here that is specifically designed for open-minded scientists who are willing to, number one, maybe they're just interested in the effects of meditation, but being willing to grapple with the deeper issues, not just what are the brain correlates of meditation states. That's fine, but you can meditate fine without knowing that. But really, what is the nature of the mind, its origins, its potential, and so forth, to study this open-mindedly, to have people achieve shamatha? On that basis, now that they've launched their mind into the outer, beyond the distortion of the psyche, be able to then run experiments, rigorous experiments, into the origins of consciousness, whether or not there are past lives, to then probe into Vipassana, the very nature of the mind, explore the four applications of mindfulness, do this, it is scientific already, bring this into full collaboration with Western-trained scientists or modern-trained scientists, and go beyond that. What is the capacity of the human heart for compassion? Do we have a set point? Is there a point beyond which we cannot go? Or is our capacity of the human heart actually boundless? If it is, we should know that, not only believe it. We should know it. Like we know the earth goes around the sun, we should know if the four immeasurables really are immeasurable, that this is our birthright. Is bodhicitta actually possible? Not simply as a conceptual construct. Can your mind become bodhicitta? And can you penetrate through to a dimension of reality that is actually the ultimate ground. Is it true that the truth will make you free? Is it true that by knowing the nature of reality, you counteract the delusion and ignorance that lie at the root of all suffering? That knowing reality is the remedy for suffering?
and it is the wellspring of all virtue. Is it true or is it not true? To take it out of the realm of metaphysics, a mere religious belief, out of tradition, bring it into experience and know it. That's the vision. Okay. So. <laughs> oh, so I've gone, I've been, I've been really watching Kathleen and it's four and a half minutes past, so I'm still keeping my word. And so enjoy your dinner, but that's a brief thumbnail sketch of what might possibly happen with the likes of us. Okay? It's all good. Enjoy your meal. <laughs>